Well, good morning. It's a privilege to be with you all this morning. We get to open God's Word together and study. We're going to be studying in Luke chapter 9. We're continuing our study in the Gospel of Luke. So we're in Luke chapter 9, verses 23 to 36. You can go ahead and start turning there. If you do have a copy of God's Word with you, it may be helpful to turn there. In your copy, we're going to reference a few of the passages right before, a few of the verses right before this section. And one of the things that I really like about living in Shanghai is that I get to meet people from all over the world. There are people from everywhere in this city, and it's so cool to meet them. I've met people from all over Asia, from Africa, from Europe, from Australia, New Zealand, and of course from all over China as well. And it's so cool to meet people from different places. One of the things that's fun to talk to other people about is what it's like for them in their hometown. This is probably common as you're getting to know somebody from somewhere that you're not from. What's it like for you in your hometown? What's your hometown like? What kind of things do you eat? What kind of things do you do? How does it compare to Shanghai? And sometimes we ask people, what is it like for you living in Shanghai as you come from Africa or Europe or from America? How is it different? What is it like for you? A lot of times people ask our family, what does living in China look like with four kids? Usually they're shocked that we have four kids and we live in Shanghai. Now we're at church here and many of us claim to be Christians. We claim to follow Jesus. But what does it look like to follow Jesus? That's an important question for any of us to ask. If you're not a Christian and you're here, it's important to ask, what does it look like to follow Jesus? If you're a new Christian, you also should ask, what does it look like to follow Jesus? What am I aiming at? How should my life look? And if you're a mature Christian, you also should ask the same thing. What does it look like to follow Jesus? Does my life look like that? In this passage today, we're going to see that Jesus answers that question. What does it look like to follow him? This is going to be helpful for all of us to consider and to look at. Pardon me. Now, so what does it look like to follow Jesus? Let's read the passage. I'll read and you follow along and consider that question. Luke 9, 23 to 36. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on a mountain to pray. As he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but they became fully awake. 
When they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it's good that we are here. Let us take make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And the voice, when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silence and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. Now, kids, if you are taking notes on your note sheet, there's a spot for the big idea. The big idea is easy to write down today. It's this cross, then a crown cross, then a crown cross, then a crown. For non-kids, we have an expanded version of the big idea as well. The main message of this passage is following Jesus looks like executing sin, embracing Jesus, and experiencing His glory. Following Jesus looks like executing sin, embracing Jesus, and experiencing his glory. Following Jesus looks like executing sin, embracing Jesus, and experiencing his glory. We'll use the simple big idea to break the passage into two parts, the cross and a crown. Verse, verses 23 to 27 is the cross. The remainder of this passage, 28 to 36, is a crown. So let's look at the cross. Verse 23, it's Jesus says to all. Previous to this, Jesus had sent out the 12 apostles, and they had come back, and he had talked to them. And he fed the 5,000, and then he's speaking with his disciples who were with him. And here it says he spoke to all. This is all people who were there listening. His disciples, anyone from the crowds who might have been there listening. This includes all of us as well. This is all. Then he says, if anyone would come after me. It's interesting. He says all and then he says, if anyone would come after me. Meaning not everyone is going to come after Jesus. Not all of the all are actually going to follow him. But he's saying, for those who would follow him, here's what it should look like. Now, the people at this time were assuming that Jesus was coming as the Messiah. Even those who believed he is the Christ, they didn't understand yet that he needed to die. And they actually didn't, wouldn't understand that until after he died and was raised. So they're expecting him to come in some way to be a governmental leader, a judge, a king, they're expecting an earthly kingdom. So some of them probably wanted to be close to Jesus because being close to him meant they could have a good position in this new kingdom. When they overthrow the Romans, then they could have a good position if they're close to Jesus. So they may have heard coming after him as those who wanted to benefit from him coming and establishing a earthly kingdom. But Jesus turns this upside down with his requirements, with what it looks like to follow him. 
Let's look there in verse 23 again at what Jesus says. He says, if anybody, if anyone would come after me, number one, let him deny himself. Jesus says to deny self. Number two, to take up his cross daily. And three, follow me. And denying self is to say no to cravings and desires of the flesh that would keep us away from the Lord. Now, we have desires. And just because we have desires and needs does not mean that those, those desires and needs are evil. God has given us desires and passions. But the way we go about fulfilling those desires is what determines whether we are following Jesus or we are sinning and being sinful. When we do not deny ourselves, then we say yes to things that are sinful and are evil. We say yes to satisfying our passions and desires in ways that go against God's commands. I need and desire to rest. But there's times that this desire to rest becomes a distraction from work. I actually want to escape from the difficult parts of life. I might try to satisfy my desire for rest and my need for rest by watching TV when I should be working. I might escape by eating or drinking so that I could feel full and feel satisfied and not think about the troubles. This is not denying my sinful self. This is looking to food and to TV or some sort of media in order to fill the need and desire I have for rest rather than resting in the Lord. The proper way to approach this would be to deny myself those things that would be against the Lord and to say yes to resting in Him, to working when it's time to work and resting when it's time to rest in the Lord. So to deny ourselves is to say no to the pleasures and the comfort that comes from anything or anyone other than in the Lord. This does not mean we cannot derive comfort or pleasure from other people, but when we look to them to comfort us and to please us other than the Lord, that is where we are not, that's when we are not denying ourselves. Jesus continues, the second requirement he has is to take up, he says that anyone who would come after me, take up his cross daily. So denying ourself, denying our sinful desires, is saying no to the inside. It looks to, the, to our heart, our sinful desires inside of us. When we take up our cross daily, this is the outward projection of what God is doing inside of us. And this is also saying no to the way that the world would go about serving self. The world is opposed to God and his principles. And when we follow what the world does, then we are also opposed to God and what he says. So as we follow in Jesus' footsteps, we're actually going against the grain. We're looking, we look very different than the world. Now this taking up the cross, it might not mean as much to us as it did to the hearers in the original context. The, the people who were listening to Jesus would have heard this and they would have pictured a criminal, someone who has broken the law, carrying a large piece of wood on their back. 
He would carry this wood to a place outside the city. It would be attached to the wood with nails through his hands and probably feet as well. Then he would be hoisted above the ground to hang there by those nails until he died. This is the gruesome picture that Jesus is telling to his hearers. Someone who is on their way to die like a criminal. And Jesus says that we should do this daily. This means that a Jesus follower should live each day as if he or she is sentenced to death. And this is not a physical death as Jesus would experience after this. We know that Jesus died in this way. But in the same way that he died physically, we die to the world and to sin. We want to die to the ways of the world. The world is going one way, and we look like criminals to the world. What we're doing as following Jesus looks foolish and looks appalling. It looks like we're criminals compared to where the world is going. And that's what we should be doing. That's what Jesus is calling us to do daily. It's a daily execution of our sinful selves. Being dead to the world looks like not worrying about the things of the world, but having a mind set on things above, set on things of the Lord. So thirdly, Jesus says for someone who would come after him to also follow him. So why would he say, come after me, then follow me? It seems like they're the same thing, right? But this follow me means and refers to something much more close than just being loosely associated with Jesus. But following is to know and to understand, to have a relationship with Jesus. So he's saying, deny yourself, take up your cross, and then be close to me, be near to me, have a relationship with me. That's required for anyone who would want to come after Jesus. This is the follow me is a continual and ongoing. It's not stopping until the end. Jesus is calling his followers to be faithful until the end by saying, follow me. This is not a one time thing, but a continual process of growing closer and closer to the Lord. Now, verse 24 Jesus continues this upside down way of thinking when he says that the best thing you can do for yourself is to lose your life for the sake of Christ. So whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Again, to the world, this looks foolish. But Jesus is saying this is the way to follow him. And then in 25, He explains this more. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? So holding on to our life here is useless and foolish in light of eternity. So the way we live as Jesus followers may look foolish to the world, but the foolish thing is following the way of the world in light of eternity. We gain nothing when we have worldly success here. But eternity matters. Jim Elliott was a missionary to jungle tribes in Ecuador. And he wrote in his journal, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep, 
to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. This is his paraphrase of this passage. And in 1955, when Jim Elliott was just 28 years old, along with four other missionaries, they went to tell some tribesmen about Jesus, and they were speared to death. Jim lost his life following what Jesus was saying. He lost his life, but he did not lose his salvation. He did not lose what God had for him. He gave up something, but he kept what he could not lose, and that was faith in Jesus. Now, Jesus continues to unpack his meaning here in verse 26, where he says that we should not be ashamed of him. Let's look at it. Verse 26, For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. So this is saying, in the, in the negative way, if, if someone is ashamed of Jesus, then he will be ashamed of them at the end of time and when he comes into his glory. So the, the positive way of saying this would be that when we are not ashamed of Jesus, he is not ashamed of us. When we say, I'm with, I'm with Jesus, I'm following him, and we're able to say that and live that out, then at the end of time, when we die, when we stand before Jesus, he says, he's, he's mine. She's, she's mine. She's with me. He's with me. So it goes both ways. We live for Jesus now as believers. This shows that we are with him, and then he is glad and happy to claim us as his own it reminds me of Romans 1.16, which says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also the Greek. So the opposite of ashamed is to, to embrace, to be wholly invested in. So Jesus' followers should embrace him completely. Jesus should change the lives of his followers. Others should notice a Jesus follower is different. Otherwise, that person may not be embracing Jesus as they should. We don't claim Christ because we decide to. We follow him because we've repented of our sin and put our faith in Jesus as our Savior. So it's not okay to just say, I'm with Jesus. We need to repent of our sin and put our faith in him. And as Christians, as followers of Jesus, then we live out that following in front of other people. We embrace Christ with our whole lives. So following Jesus, being a disciple of Jesus, looks like living differently in the world. And not just a little different, but very different. It looks like we're dead to the world. So from this section, there's two application points. And they're from the, from the main point. Number one is to execute sin, to kill sin. We should take radical action against our natural sinful self and against the world around us. We as Christians should look differently than the world. Just as Jim Elliott was a missionary to the remote jungles of Ecuador, 
He was young. He had potential for so many things. He could have done so many other things. To the world, it looked foolish that he would go to this remote jungle and tell people about Jesus. It could cost him his life, and it did. But what he did was what he understood God had for him to do. It was the best thing that he could do is to look foolish to the world, but to be following Jesus. So we should be executing the sin of our heart. We should see it, confess that it's sin, repent of it before God. One of the things we need to remember and definitely do as we execute sin in our lives is to do that in community with other people. We should talk to brothers or sisters regularly about sin, about our own sin and how that execution process is going. See, we cannot fight sin alone. The devil is a real enemy with real power. He's like a lion lurking around, looking for a sheep all by themselves so that he can devour them. We must not be like that lone sheep. We cannot go alone at killing sin. We must involve other people around us. The first step is to be involved in a gospel-preaching church, a local church, And even more than that, because even in a group our size, you can still hide. You can still not be close to someone. need to be close to people. One-on-one type relationships with a brother or a sister. We can talk about sin and be able to confess sin. It's difficult to start a conversation about sin, though. I'm I'm really not any good at it. I usually wait until the very end of the conversation... We're kind of standing to leave, and I'm like, oh, by the way, uh, I need to confess something to you. Or I'm like super eager. I do it at the very beginning and hardly even say hi. I'm just like, yeah, I need to confess something before we get into a conversation, and I don't do it. Uh, But no matter how awkward it is or difficult it is to bring up, it's important to do and to practice doing. The person you're talking to will not think it's odd or weird. They might be relieved and actually want to confess things as well. This is mutually good for all of us to take the initiative to confess our sin as we are killing it in our hearts. Another thing with executing sin, we need to remember that we cannot do it just by ourselves. We must trust in God and depend on His work in us to kill the sin. So any confession that we do to with a brother or sister It needs to start with repenting to God first. When we sin, we need to confess to God that what we did was evil and wrong. And then we go to a brother and sister and say, I have repented of this sin before God. So it's before God that we answer for our sin. We have the benefit of confessing to each other in order that we might grow and others might grow in our relationship with God. So that's executing sin. Secondly, is embracing Christ. Embrace Christ. So our denial of self without embracing Christ actually is idol worship. It's idolatry. So if we just deny ourselves, but we don't embrace Christ, then it's still about us. Now we get the glory because we didn't do that, or we denied ourselves in this way. And that's still self-serving. We're not going to 
experience the joy that God has for us if we deny ourselves without embracing Christ. Christ is the focus, the strength, and the power. He's the point of any self-denial. He's the point of us working to execute sin in our lives. It's not for our own good. It's not so that we can feel better about ourselves that now I don't do that or I'm stronger than this. No, Christ is the point in our relationship with Him. So we want to embrace Him. Another way that we embrace Christ is we remember that we carry our cross, like he said, for the world to see. So just like we cannot execute sin alone, we cannot embrace Christ without others noticing. We do it for a watching world. Our Christian brothers and sisters should recognize God's work in us. So when you see God working in and through someone, let them know. It's encouraging to go to someone and say, hey, I see how you've changed in the way that you interact with people. Or I see how you're serving so well. I'm very thankful to God for your service to our church and what you're doing. When you see God working, when you see a change in someone, that should be encouraging to you. Also, let them know that's encouraging to them. And as you change, make sure that you're in community, that you're around people, and people notice that God is working on you. Do your coworkers know that you're a Christian? They should know that you're a Christian. If they think you're just like everyone else, then you, there may be a serious problem in the way you're embracing Christ and you're displaying that to a watching world. I'm not saying you have to be annoying with talking to them about it, but we should live differently in such a way that they see a difference in us. The outside world should see a difference in the way we live, the way we speak. And again, we're doing this not for the sake of just being different and being individual. We do all of this for the sake of the glory of Christ, for His glory, that He might be praised, that people would see Him in us. That brings us to the second point. The first was the cross. We execute sin and embrace Christ. The second point is a crown. We have the cross, then a crown. By crown, I mean glory, like a king wearing a crown in his glory. Let's read again verses 28 to 35. Follow along as I read there. Verse 28. Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. As the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. And he was, as he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, And they were afraid as they entered the cloud. A voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. 
Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. Now throughout the Gospel of Luke, Jesus tells people something about himself. He reveals a truth to them. And then he shows them through miracles that he really is who he says he is. And that's similar to what he's doing here. He just told them that in verse 27 that some standing there would not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. And now here, Peter, James, and John get to see a glimpse, a small taste of the glory of the kingdom of God, the glory of the Son and of the Father. Verse 28 tells us that this happened eight days after, it says, these sayings. What happened previous to this is Peter said that Jesus is the Christ. And then Jesus said that he must be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and be killed and on the third day raised. So Jesus is saying that he's going to be killed and then be raised. And then Jesus tells all what it looks like to follow him. So after all these sayings, then we get to this point. Now, one one thing we should note before we go further is that they went up to the mountain to pray. Jesus was there in order to pray. And we should consider this as an application. We need to turn to prayer. Nothing happens without prayer. We should give significant time to prayer as Jesus did. We look to his example, his guide, as we follow him. What did he do? He prayed. In our desire to experience God's glory, we too often neglect prayer. Not praying is way too easy. But we must pray and endure in prayer. If Jesus needed to pray, how much more do you think we need to pray? Let's continue looking here. Verse 29. It says that Jesus' face was changed. It was altered and his clothing dazzling white. And then we see the cameo appearance of Moses and Elijah. And they appeared and spoke to Jesus about his departure. Departure here, which says he was going to accomplish in Jerusalem, probably refers to his death. It's similar to what we might say today as someone passed away. Or their passing or departure. It could also be a reference to the exodus when the people of Israel were led out of Egypt by God and through Moses, which we'll talk about that connection in just a moment. But we see in verse 32 that the the disciples here, the apostles were apparently sleeping. They were heavy with sleep. But then, when they became fully awake, it's interesting that Luke notes they were fully awake. This was not an out-of-body experience. They didn't all dream the same thing. It says they're fully awake. This is like completely caffeinated. It's like they've had two cups of coffee already. This is how fully awake they are. This is not a dream, and it's not a vision. Like we see some places in the Bible, they're fully awake, and this really happened. They testify to what happened is what really happened. It wasn't a vision. It seems like they caught the tail end of the conversation. <laughs> Excuse me. 
Because soon after, in verse 33, it says, as the men were parting from him. So they're saying goodbye, saying zaijian. And Peter, which Peter seems to speak a lot when he's nervous, he just starts talking. He's like, oh, this is so good that we're here. Let's make three tents. He suggests building these tents. And Luke even gives us the, the benefit of saying at the end of 33, not knowing what he said. I wonder if Luke actually interviewed Peter for this part. And Peter's like, I, I don't know what I was saying. I just, just. That seems to be what's going on. He wasn't sure what to do, so he started speaking. What we see after this happens, he's interrupted by the cloud. A cloud came in and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. <clears throat> Peter's cut off by this thick cloud that comes and surrounds them. They're gripped with fear, and then a voice comes out of the cloud. Verse 35, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. How incredible it would have been to be on the mountain. And incredibly scary, like they were scared. Now remember, they're not dreaming. They're fully awake for this. And God himself is speaking to them. Jesus knew that he was the chosen one. This was for the benefit of Peter and James and John, and also for the benefit of those who are reading this, for us. And we see too in the the very last verse that they didn't tell anyone until later, probably after Jesus was raised from the dead and ascended into heaven. So there's some things we should notice from this passage and from this scene. One of those is that this resembles greatly the book of Exodus, which I mentioned earlier. Peter, James, and John probably would have noticed these similarities. Luke's original readers would have noticed these similarities as well. So what are some of these similarities? How does it compare to the Exodus and the book of Exodus? We see Jesus talking to Moses and Elijah about his departure. As I mentioned earlier, departure is reference to Exodus, meaning exit. So they're leaving Egypt in the same way that Jesus is talking about his departure. And then after leaving Egypt, the people of Israel go to Mount Sinai, where God calls Moses up on the mountain to talk to him. Like Jesus and the disciples are going up the mountain to pray, to talk to God. After Moses met with God, we see in Exodus 34 that his face was radiant. It glowed. The appearance of his face was different, such that the people didn't even want to look at him. It was difficult for them. It was overwhelming. He would cover his face with a veil. And when God would speak to Moses, he covered Mount Sinai with a cloud. It indicated his presence was there. Similar to the cloud that came here. The cloud covered the mountain. It was thick and dark and it was scary. That's the way it was at Mount Sinai as well. And during this time, the people are living in booths or tents. This may have been why Peter suggested the tents. He's like, this looks like the Exodus. This looks like what I've seen before. We need some tents as well. Holy camping. That's what we need to do. Now, At Mount Sinai, God's word was given to the people. This is where the Ten Commandments were given from God to Moses, who delivered it to the people of God. 
And it's interesting that here, God is proclaiming that his word incarnate in Jesus is given. His chosen one is given to his people. Not just the word, but the word with flesh on, Jesus himself. Now, why do you think Moses and Elijah showed up here? Why not someone else like David or Abraham or Noah? I don't know exactly why, but one thing to remember is that Jesus had come to proclaim the arrival of the kingdom of God, but this was not an earthly kingdom. If this was an earthly kingdom and he was going to battle physically with the Romans and with anyone else who might want to oppress, then maybe David would have shown up. David would have been a good one to to show up. But that is not God's purpose here. He's bringing the kingdom, but this is a spiritual kingdom that's coming. Jesus' purpose for coming was to die, was to carry the cross and die, as he's already mentioned before. So he did not need a military general to come like David. But it's important that this is Elijah and Moses. Now, Elijah, we know from Malachi 4, verse 5, it says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. This great and awesome day of the Lord would be the resurrection of Jesus. Death and resurrection. This is a time when God is working for the salvation of his people. That's the day of the Lord. He says that Elijah will come prior to that. So here's Elijah. He's he's here before the great and awesome day of the Lord. It's also interesting that Elijah did not die himself. He was carried up in a whirlwind. 2 Kings 2 says, As they, this is Elijah and Elisha, walking together, as they went on and talked, behold, chariots of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them, and Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. So Elijah himself did not die. But here Jesus had come to die like a criminal. He was going to suffer and die and then be raised from the dead and ascend into heaven. Possibly similar to the way Elijah went into heaven. Now what about Moses? Well, Moses was probably the most respected and important spiritual leader of the people of Israel that they had ever had. He had led them out of Egypt and to the promised land. So Moses is incredibly important. Now, if you have your Bibles, look in Luke 9, chapter uh, verse 18 to 20. It's just a little bit above the passage we're talking about. In there, this is Jesus. He asked his disciples, who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say, Elijah. And others, that one of the prophets of old has risen. So this is very interesting because that happened in a few verses later. We see Elijah and we see one of the prophets of old, Moses, there standing and talking to Jesus. So why is it important that these guys are here? Well, if the people thought that Jesus was Elijah or they thought that he might be Moses, then how in the world can Jesus be talking to Elijah and Moses in front of these apostles. How can they see him talking to them if he is supposed to be one of them? Does that make sense? So I heard a story about some twin brothers. They both worked in the Air Force. 
One was stationed in California, the other in Hawaii. The brother in California was in charge of helping pilots get into the plane before they would take off. He would make sure the cockpit was sealed correctly. As he would help them get in the plane and get the cockpit sealed, he'd say, I'll see you when you get there. Now his brother, who worked in Hawaii, was in charge of opening the cockpit and helping the pilots out. So when they would arrive, he'd say, hey, you made it. I got here pretty fast, huh? You see, they were twin brothers. It looked like the pilots are incredibly confused. Like, I, how in the world? If, I, if you help me get in, how are you helping me get out? Now, Jesus wanted to make sure that Peter, James, and John knew that Jesus was not a repeat. He was not a twin. It was not an illusion. This was the real thing. Jesus was the real chosen one, the Messiah. See, Jesus is not Elijah. He's a new and better Elijah. Jesus is not Moses. He's a new and better Moses. Jesus is not a good moral teacher or just a great prophet. He's God himself. So how, what do we do with this? How do we apply this to our lives? The third application today is experience God's glory. Experience his glory. He said the main point of this passage is following Jesus looks like executing sin, embracing Jesus, and now experience God's glory. Well, it's helpful to talk about what is God's glory. It's difficult to define. We say it a lot. We sing a lot about God's glory. But when we sit down to write the definition, it's a little bit hard to do. But here's one definition, one way to think about it. It's a little bit long and difficult, so I'll give you a simpler version after this. God's glory is the visible manifestation of the power of God signifying God's presence. Does that make sense? That's a little hard. Basically, God's glory is God on display. When people see God's power, recognize His presence in plain view, that is God's glory being shown. That is the revealing of his glory. Seeing God is God's glory. So mountains display the glory of God. A sinner who repents and believes in Jesus displays the glory of God. God's power and his work and his presence is seen, is in plain view. A church full of people from all over the world worshiping and singing praise to God displays his glory. It gives him, gives him glory and it also displays his glory. How in the world could we come together and agree that Jesus is Lord without him working in us to that agreement? We should not really be together. By the world's standards, we should not get along at all. But here we are when we love each other. That's God's glory. We can see God's glory in the way he works among us. When we read our Bible in the morning, we display and experience God's glory. So how do we go about experiencing God's glory? I have two suggestions, two ways 
to go about this. One is to think, and the second is to tell. So think and tell. Think, and this doesn't mean just thinking lightly, but meditating, spending time, using your mind, engaging your mind, and thinking about how incredible it is that Jesus would die for us. Think about it. We are not that important. I'm not that important. Why would Jesus die for me? I'm difficult. I have doubts and struggles. I don't love very well. I'm incredibly selfish. Many times I'm mean. I can be lazy. I don't forgive very well. Often I tear down with my words instead of building up. I'm full of pride. I think that I'm special, but I'm not. I envy. I'm full of bitterness at times. But how incredible is it that Jesus would die for me? How incredible is it that Jesus would die for you? As we think about the things that God has done, we experience his glory. That we would be so low and him so high, but yet he would bridge the gap between us. That he would want to bring us into relationship with him. How amazing he must be. Jesus could have walked into glory with Moses and Elijah, but he didn't. He stayed. He could have gone up on the mountain by himself. But he chose to bring with him these apostles so that they could see and experience a glimpse of his glory. Even Peter, who just started talking, he didn't necessarily respond rightly, but Jesus still brought him along and wanted him to experience that. In a similar way, Jesus wants us to experience his glory. We should consider it. Think about it. I have a recommendation about, as you think about uh, God's glory and exploring that more, is to read Desiring God, the book called Desiring God by John Piper. Now, I have to confess, I've started reading this book three times, um, and I haven't finished yet, and I'm currently listening to it as an audiobook, and that is an excellent way to consume this book. Um, usually because I would read some and then I'd say, wow, I need to read that again because this is so, it's so good, so rich. But I highly recommend it. Try it. Listen to the audiobook. It's much, much um, easier to consume and let it soak in your mind. Think about God's glory. And secondly is to tell about God's glory. This goes along with the first point about executing sin. It talks about confessing to other people. We want to confess as God changes us and works on us and makes us more and more like Christ. We want to tell about the things that God has done that points to His great power and His love for us. The thing that I thought of is me actually here preaching today. I never wanted to be a pastor as I was growing up. I only preached my first full sermon less than two years ago. I have a career background in engineering. By all rights, I really should not be here preaching. But here I am. And I could be doing something else. By the world standards, I should be doing something else. Why am I doing this? But the fact is, I enjoy this. I like this. And I can't seem to stay away from it. I want to continue to preach and to be a pastor. And I can't even believe I'm saying that. But that's God's work in me 
to bring me to this place where I actually want to do this and I enjoy it. C.S. Lewis says that when we enjoy something, we cannot help but tell other people about it. We desire to share what we love and enjoy because the sharing of what we love and enjoy completes the experience of joy. It completes the experience of that thing we enjoy, that we love. He says, fully to enjoy is to glorify. Fully to enjoy is to glorify. In commanding us to glorify Him, God is inviting us to enjoy Him. As we glorify God, we enjoy Him. As we point out, as we think about and see and tell about God's power and His presence and His work in saving His people, then we enjoy Him as well. It's good for us also. It's good for us to glorify God. So we want to glorify God by bringing God and His work in front of our eyes and in in the view of other people. We want to glorify Him And we experience, as we glorify Him, we experience His glory as well. So what does it look like to follow Jesus? What does following Jesus look like? We said a cross, then a crown. Death, then glory. So for us as Christians, it looks like executing sin. With God's work in us, we kill the sin of our heart and refuse to live the way of the world. We also embrace Christ. We don't just execute sin, we embrace Christ as well. Because the fight against sin is worthless unless we turn from our sin to Christ. And then we experience God's glory as we think about, meditate on God and His glory, His work, and we tell others about our good God as well. There's really no better way to conclude than Jesus' words. God's chosen one, what he said in verse 23, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Brothers and sisters, let's follow after Jesus with our whole hearts and lives. Let's pray. God, you are worthy of all glory and honor. Help us to deny our sinful selves, to die to this world and faithfully follow you, Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.